Hello and welcome back to Vanguard at Dawn. My name is Ren and this is my co-host Alisa. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) This is our part two of our extended little tea party, end of the year tea party, where we go over some long lasting effects and thoughts about the podcast. We're also going to be going over the amazing messages that we received on platforms like Ko-Fi, YouTube, some reviews that we have gotten over the months that we've been doing this. But we aren't going to be going over the private DMs because obviously I feel like that's kind of more between us and our fans. Like if they they messaged us privately, it probably should say, you know, between us. But um, just know if you're listening and you did private message us and we did have correspondence, you literally light up my whole darn heart. (laughs) but um out of respect for you and our conversations we're not going to be revealing too much about that but just know that everybody was so lovely and wonderful yes so here we go and to kick things off the next point that i want to talk about is nat turner's rebellion and how they used spirituals in order to organize that like reading the article about spirituals and privacy in the black community back then both during slavery and now was so interesting it was so interesting when they talk about slave rebellions there's this weird thing where it's like oh look it's good that they're rebelling obviously but because of the southern apologist attitude that history gets told through they don't really hype up the extraordinary lengths that they went through in order to spread the information and to be able to organize a rebellion when you're literally under constant surveillance, when you have no rights as a human being to be able to discuss freely these topics and to join together and to know that you're all on the same page and to feel empowered enough to have a rebellion, that's extraordinary. What was interesting about it is that it gave so much vocab that specific article that you were mentioning gives so much vocabulary to the discussion of privacy within the black community that a lot of it innately if you're in the black community you probably are aware of it to some degree if you've been welcomed into black spaces before you've seen this kind of duality but you haven't necessarily had the language for it if you haven't done further research on the topic I just think that's really important to have that in history and I think it encapsulates that an extra added layer of important safe spaces within history is having a grasp and the vocabulary of how to discuss those things and how to articulate this tension that's ever present when we discuss anything about race, when we discuss any dynamic possible, history, things that happen today, having more vocabulary to put word to the tension is so important because it's not going to be helpful to ignore the tension. So the next step is, okay, we can't ignore the tension. So what do we do about it? Let's learn what the tension is, what the vocabulary is behind the tension and let's massage it on out. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And to to finally, that's exactly right. To have a vocabulary for things that I participated in and understood innately, like, you know, the black nod <laughs> or, you know, when you feel uncomfortable saying or doing something because you're in mixed company. That's because you're not in the privacy of a space where you feel completely safe or completely welcome. It's because of that double consciousness and because of the veil that Du Bois talks about. Yeah, and I will even bring up being in history settings, like academically. A lot of the times I am very much 
pushing a lot of people's buttons when I have conversations about history because I have conversations about history and I assert things like, well, you know, because everybody back then was racist or I'll say something like, well, you know, white people always had to come in, colonize. I'll say things that are very disparaging to what people have been taught about history. A lot of times, depending on the age of the person, the race of the person, I will be met with them kind of like, taken aback but in my opinion it's like we need to normalize saying those things with our whole chest and be like uh yeah that's actually what happened what's not sugarcoat what events took place and who they benefited and i think that's one more element of how like even in history that taboo is kept which is why history is told in such a kind of artificial manner sometimes because we need to have history being intertwined with discourse that fits today's society it just should yes and when we keep things so taboo, so under wraps, so unstated, that's another way that they're able to look back at the history and say, oh, I don't think that they intended that. I don't think that that's what was going on. And that's how you're able to have an apologist lens on the history when we keep things so under wraps, when we have such a taboo. So there's a lot of power in saying something directly and to pointing out the intentions when it's happening. Another thing that's interesting is keeping those things under wrapped. That's how the older generation and the problems that their societies have had are kept to themselves. That's how younger people have this huge separation between past and the present. And that's why some historical events seem so far away. That's why people don't realize that the racist people in the 60s are literally like the racist people from the 60s are the racist people from now like they're the same people yes yes my granny who is about 80 now she has witnessed and been present and had to deal with the same like we talk about mlk and we talk about the summer of love which was also a summer where there were so many protests and she was there for that so we talk about all of the amazing non-problematic figures that have persisted because they're still beloved to this day like betty white she's been here forever or like angela davis yes yeah. yes but the same people that they were having to fight against, the same people that oppressed those people are still alive to this day. Totally. They're, and they're still influencing. They're still here. They're still in power. They're still influencing this world. It didn't just go away because we stopped talking about it. They're among us. <laughs> they're sus. <laughs> But for real, yes, what that point is so true. I think that's also something that's really indicative of just like family get togethers, because I think that's a time <laughs> literally generations are coming together. And there's uh, this is another example why taboo topics are so difficult to surmount, because we're we're taught that family is everything that you can be open with family, except who here goes to Thanksgiving. And before you even step in the door, your mom like turns around and says something to you like, okay, now you know grandpa is old. You know he's problematic. Try not to engage with that stuff. Okay? Like stuff like that. <laughs> that was not an impression of my mother. She has a lovely voice. She's never said that to me. It's an example yes. of something. Yes, of that be the bigger person. Yes. Don't react to them don't being stir problematic. The pot. Yeah. yeah. All these ideas. But what they're really saying is don't challenge their really messed up ideas. Like, and we've gotten to the point where it's become like younger generations are starting to push back on that idea. It's like, you're not safe because it's Thanksgiving 
Thanksgiving. Honey, this is clapback season. I will hurt you if I need to. Yes. This is what we're doing and this is what we're not going to do. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. The last thing on my list that specifically is in regard to one of the topics we covered is our Harlem Renaissance series and the queer black history that is in the shadows of this country that does not get the spotlight it deserves. As a queer black person, I had no idea. Like you hear about the different um the different art movements. Movements, yes. <laughs> and the different mediums and the way that they were groundbreaking and the cultivation. But they don't talk about the fact that it was also this beautiful it was real gay yes (laughs) yeah yeah it was this beautiful flourishing of so many awesome open-minded things happening and it was just so there's so much wholesomeness that just does not get brought up a lot yes and you know it's interesting in the 60s they talk about the social tolerance and acceptance that was prevalent but i feel like the way that that history is taught is in a very like white society it was very accepting gays uh, but, definitely. That, I think that's how we get terms like the the summer of love. Like only a white person <laughs> would look at that summer and think that it was a summer of love. You know what I mean? So absolutely on that. Yes. Yeah. But the Harlem Renaissance and just the flavor. The flavor. <laughs> the flavor of a black movement of acceptance and cultural cultivation and just the way that so many people were thriving Yes. <laughs> Just yes. I think for so many reasons, I like talking about the Harlem Renaissance for like, gosh, like I said, for so many reasons, there's so many great things about it. And I think what I love doing is make people look in the face a point in time. I think, to be honest with you, I think this is something that a lot of white people are uncomfortable talking about, but it's something that I've seen a lot while conducting conversations with white people about race. I've noticed, I've picked up on something and it's just kind of a, I guess, a another observation. So be aware this isn't like something that's been studied that I know of or that I've done research on. But what I can say is when I'm having these conversations with white people, when we talk about that thing that John Oliver talked about, how American exceptionalism and history taught with an American exceptionalism gaze is shown always going upward, always getting better. I think that, in my opinion, is never not going to be tied with the idea that there's a little primitiveness that I feel like is attached to black people when people talk like that. Black people didn't start thinking they deserved better. They have always been fighting for freedom in this country. They have always had will. They have always had desire. There were always black people who were demanding better for themselves. And I think that makes white people really uncomfortable. There wasn't a day in time in the 50s, in the 1950s, where black people woke up and they're like, oh, now I want freedom. No, it has been a merciless battle of freedom from day one. From day one, it has been a battle. And I think that that's something that white people have a really hard time accepting. And I know it's uncomfortable to say, but I've noticed it when I'm talking to certain white people. I have this moment with them where I realize you really wish that they just got anxious for freedom now, don't you? No, this is something that's been happening forever. Generations and generations of inequality and oppression. And the 50s was after 
the Harlem Renaissance. The Harlem Renaissance happened in the 20s. This is a movement of well-educated, established Black people talking about Black issues, experiencing Black culture in an unashamed and unabashed way. So no, this isn't a conversation that's new. And I feel like that's another thing that frustrates me as somebody who knows history. When you're telling me about American exceptionalism, the only thing I can think of is that makes you feel like we just now are having this problem. We're not running into these problems now. They have always been here and people have always been fighting and pushing against it. When their voice gets louder, just somebody put a mic on it. They haven't not been saying it. They haven't not been screaming at the top of their lungs for years that these things need to get better. People shouldn't have needed 2020 to open their eyes to these issues, but we do because of that idea and this notion, oh, people are starting to speak up now. No, honey. We've been speaking up. You just haven't been listening. Yes. And I definitely, like, for my own personal research and just growth, I still want to read authors from the Harlem Renaissance, people like Zora Neale Hurston, Du Bois, and Langston Hughes, just because not only is their writing so relevant to what we're going on today it can give us the vocabulary for the things that we're noticing just like earlier those writings they're revolutionary to my daily life just because there's so much power and understanding that comes with having a term for something like that's why having labels can be so empowering for people because it's like there there's a word for what i'm experiencing and it showcases that other people are also experiencing that and just like you've said these people have been speaking we just haven't been listening to them and and i think that's uh, thank you for bringing that up actually zora neil hurston uh du bois which again we will be talking about him more langston all of those people First of all, when you look at their lives outside of being a writer, you don't have to read a single thing of them and be impressed about who they are and the life that they lived. Like, it's super impressive. And one of my long lasting things that I absolutely just adored being able to do was read Zora Neale Hurston stuff. I had learned a little bit about Zora before. Obviously, I think it's hard to learn anything about the Harlem Renaissance without even hearing Zora's name because of how iconic she is from that time. But I had heard about her. I had seen quotes by her. I had never read her until um, I started to try and understand the culture of the Harlem Renaissance before trying to actually <laughs> tell other people about the culture of the Harlem Renaissance. All I can say is I just want to take a brief moment to tell everybody I cannot encourage you enough to read Their Eyes Were Watching God. It is amazing. She paints such beautiful pictures with her words. The way that she paints a story that is at one moment simplistic and very simplified, it is on the other hand also insanely complicated and filled with emotions that are difficult to discern and deal with when you're reading. It is wonderful. I laughed. I cried so much while reading. <laughs> like there's such an escalator of emotions that she makes you feel. You go up and down so quickly like nothing else in the world when you read her stuff. It is just absolutely wonderful and I think that it does offer such an amazing look into black culture gosh it's amazing it's amazing it's amazing it's amazing on the other hand then you have Langston which to the to this day <laughs> he's amazing and his work is amazing I could I could read him every day all day I read his poems randomly all the time we have obviously a copy of his collected poems but 
the way that he talks about race, the way that he explains different gazes into the black experience is so interesting. He doesn't just talk from a black man's point of view. He incorporates women in his writing. He talks about the experiences of black women in his writings. He encapsulates um, a little bit of queerness in his writings. There's just, he encapsulates different things outside of his own experience in a very well done way. And it's just super inviting to read, simplistic to read. You don't have to, it doesn't make you feel pretentious. You know, you're reading this awesome thing that's wholesome and it's moving. You don't have to have a PhD to read it and be moved by it. But yeah, so being able to read that stuff and interact with that time period. Yeah. One of the things that I love about Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes is the way that they champion everyday people. I dabble in the poetic arts, <laughs> but one thing that I've always struggled with is that my writing style is very simplistic and very like some some would say that it lacks a certain level of sophistication that is expected from poets. One thing that is really empowering about reading them is it helps me appreciate the work that I also do. I was so overjudgmental of myself and my capabilities, but reading them and seeing parallels to my own work really just gave me another appreciation for it and made me realize that it doesn't have to conform to what society dictates poetry or prose or writing in general needs to look like in order for it to have depth and to be beautiful and to convey a message and connect with whoever is reading it. Definitely, definitely. And I think that that's where the humanity is restored to everything. Somebody like Langston, somebody like Zora having a less what would be considered proper language in their stuff. What they do is even with stuff that isn't considered, quote, proper language or proper writing styles, is they still show such humanity and incorporate what it means to be human, what the human experiences to their audience. And any time that we can bring humanity back into the conversation of history is just super important. Like history was never without humanity. Humans were alive. They were real. They felt they were harmed by these things that happened. And, and and that's why you can't separate it. You can't tell the story without its humanity. And that brings me to my last thing, which was just experiencing in real time the shift between being the person being taught about history and being the one teaching history. We go out of our way to make sure that all of our information is as fact-checked as history can be. And this is something that's a rule of thumb of any historian. If you are a historian, you know this. <laughs> Everybody will tell you you're wrong <laughs> when you tell history in any way. There's always somebody who will refute what you're saying. There's and, and we leave room for that, I think. I think that we leave room by saying, this is the facts that I found. Be aware through your own research. You might come across your own things but like while researching and while bettering my knowledge on these things because the integrity of our show is so important the amount of time put into research to verify everything to confront my own biases to take into account that I may have had a notion about history that was wrong or whatever it is and I don't know I just think it's it was really interesting to put myself in that perspective and realizing it was up to me to make sure that every level of humanity got conveyed while doing it felt like such a weight, such a responsibility. But I also was just really, really proud of how much we were able to lean into confidence and give ourselves the confidence we needed and the extra push we needed to do that. And to, of course, leave room for error and to encapsulate the very important duality of accountability and confidence is what I 
have been I think the podcast has helped me do I think researching has helped me do I think pushing us to do better to create such high quality content has made me have to learn such an important balance between those two things that's a really important just like life lesson that I've gained from this podcast that I I don't really see how I would have been put into position to have learned that if it were outside of the podcast yeah yeah I I think I I had something very similar that I was going through not the same um obviously because I'm not a historian (laughs) but to be a part of something that is telling history when you are not yourself a historian is an interesting duality because I had to find the confidence in my own voice and in the knowledge that I have and in the research that I've done, even though I didn't formally study something. I think um, one of the areas that I've always been the most confident in is art because I've always had a, a very like formal education in that area. So I'm like, I can rely on this expertise because of how reliable the information was because I can trust the source of it. And trusting in my own ability to have picked up information from trusted sources in the past and currently, to have that confidence was something that I definitely had to gain. Like reading through the scripts with you and ensuring that we were conveying everything in a manner that we could feel confident in, that made me trust myself because we were both relying on each other to make sure that the content was correct. Definitely. And that's interesting. So first of all, especially to all my young ladies out there, everybody, everybody who's listening, know this applies to you, but especially women, because again, like I mentioned earlier, women have faced a lot of insecurity when it comes to being involved in history. But that being said, something that I think everybody should know, and this comes from a historian, I don't speak for all historians, but I can tell you that I think formal education isn't necessarily needed to be considered a historian. And let me clarify, I think that formal education is so very important. I think that college, when you have a good college, can forever enrich your life. The lessons that you learn from college, if you put time into the classes, if you have a liberal arts education and you're able to interact with subjects that you wouldn't have, depending on, like, we had to take poli-sci classes, we had to take science classes, we had to take math classes, we had to take all sorts of different classes that we never would have otherwise. And I'm deeply grateful for that because I think that enriched both of our lives and most people who go to college, hopefully, I I hope they have a similar experience. But that being said, while formal education should not be belittled and we should absolutely know the difference between somebody who has an education, who has been, who is a certified professional in a subject. I don't want to belittle how important certified professionals are and how we should look to those who have training and things for that kind of stuff. But we live in the age of information. You know, Wikipedia is honestly a really good site that has a really bad rap, but you can actually learn a lot from Wikipedia. I often verify what I already know with Wikipedia. Like I will often look at Wikipedia and be like, okay, yes, I knew that. I just had to refresh. Yes. It's it's a really reliable source, <laughs> especially because it offers footnotes that you can go and do your own research through the footnotes uh, and, and be like, okay, if you don't trust Wikipedia, trust Wikipedia sources, you know, do the research for yourself, read the, re- read the resources and you can tell me how reliable they are, you know? Yes. I think because... The age of information was very new, even when we were in school. So I can't imagine the people who were in school before us. Like Wikipedia <laughs> had such a bad rep. Such a bad rep. Yes. Like I all mean, the time yeah. they were like, D- don't even go near it. You can't <laughs> trust the information on there. But actually now it is 
far more fact checked and accurate than it is given credit for when you google the most obscure question (laughs) usually one of the first sources with the most information will be wikipedia and so i think we need to give more credit to our collective knowledge when it comes to online places that's why like for news one of the best news sources for fast (laughs) and accurate information on what's going down actually in the streets what people are actively experiencing and i think this was very noticeable during the protests when the media sources were kind of suppressing the coverage of those on twitter and tiktok you could see the information and you had accurate information of what exactly was happening at every place well before any news media ever came even close to covering it yeah and i think that's because it it, they're objectively exactly what happened you were watching real-time videos this was videos that were being captured and i think that that's another thing i'm really glad you brought that up because it's actually something that's really prevalent like so what i was going to say to um I never wrapped up this thought. This is my, I got on a whole different tangent and I didn't like go back to this. But the thing is, you're absolutely right about major platforms that allow for more diversity that wouldn't otherwise be seen in a different setting. Absolutely. Should we be skeptical skeptical of things that we see on social media? My gosh, wouldn't that be insane of me to say no? Like, of course we should. Absolutely be skeptical of the information that you receive on any platform, literally ever. Literally be skeptical of things that you read in a book until you've read another book. Like, never just stop with one source like even when I felt really confident about the knowledge that I knew already because it was something that I spent a lot of time studying I still fact-checked myself because that's what we should all do it's a good practice but on that same subject Wikipedia in a lot of ways and I mean this with my whole chest I really do Wikipedia in a lot of ways offers a more inclusive way to look at history than a lot of different platforms do because if you go to official U.S. history sites like again I am going to bring up the Civil War because I just think it I mean one we spent a lot of time on that this season but also because um hello (laughs) the civil war is such a big thing in the united states history so comes up a lot anyway if you go to official sites there's so much of the story that is just not there especially again of course i am coming from a mostly black history background so when they would talk about this timeline and they would bring up all these events i'm like okay well that's what was happening politically but i mean let's talk like there there's a whole gap of things that are just not mentioned even when it is centered around race when you look at official events that caused the civil war what you will see is exactly the events we went over. So when what I call trigger events, that is what other people call trigger events of the Civil War. The events that we said are officially known as trigger events of the Civil War. But what happens is you'll look at the timeline of a Civil War and an official site will say something like the compromise that happened for Missouri, the compromise that happened in 1850, like all these things. And then they'll go, great works of Henry Clay. So you don't read, oh, they were compromising people's, they were literally waging people's lives and waging people's ability to be free or not in the mix of their politics. What you read is, the compromise of 1850 secured us a little longer in the country. That's what it says. When I read those things, I can tell you, I'm very grateful to have my background because you do not get the full story on a lot of these platforms, which is why we can Wikipedia is awesome. And I will tell you this. All you have to do is have somebody in the room who would be actively affected by it, aka representation and diversity in the room. One sentiment that I heard recently that I think really encapsulates that is when you're in a room, it is your job to look around and see who's not there, see who's missing. And I think if we all actively try and 
see who's missing in the rooms we can help in the future. But when we're looking at historical stuff, see who was in the room, look at who was left out of the conversation and recognize what wasn't brought to the table, what they didn't address and all of their biases that they instilled in that information. And I think that that can really help with giving a clear understanding of what actually happened. Part of telling history is setting a scene when you're telling it. It's important to always acknowledge it was white cis men who were in a room together. I mean, think about our first president. Think about George Washington and how when they're asking us to think of his words, what they're asking us is to listen to the words that came out of the mouth that had his slave's teeth in his mouth for his dentures. That's what they're asking us to do. And it's important that we look that in the face. And the scene is set when you ask me to revisit what George Washington told us about this country. I'm not saying that everything he had to say was wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying know what mouth it came out of. Yes. So I think we've given more than adequate attention to what we talked about in the lectures. So I want to shift our gaze a little bit to the tea times. And first off... (laughs) Our fake sponsors. My gosh, it's so embarrassing to even think about it. They were actually a lot of fun to try and come up with what was going to be that sponsor of that week. And I, I really like incorporating like Franklin into a few of them. That was so much fun, especially for his laser pointer when we were able to get him to meow. So cute. So cute. And he's okay. Just to like, just so you know, that tiny little meow you heard came from a 16 pound. Oh, big old boy. A 16 pound cat. Yes. Oh, but he he's the sweetest, the sweetest cat. He's so gentle. He has this thick black fur. He He's just a staple in life in an our apartment wherever we go franklin is a hundred percent there all the rubies know franklin's the cool cat in town (laughs) yeah it's obviously not me because i just said something like that which (laughs) effectively immediately brings any any hope of me being cool just got stripped from my being (laughs) so it would be remiss for us to talk about tea time and to not bring up the incredible work of Dr. Weber and him allowing us to play his music during the transitional period between our lectures and tea times. I am so grateful for him allowing us to put his music there. And also, I just adore, adore his music. I think it really sets the tone for tea time. It's so, it can be so relaxing, so moving. I've really, really enjoyed being able to incorporate him in that way. I totally agree. I really appreciated doing that. And speaking of artistry, we featured some really, really cool artists even early on. When we didn't know what we were doing quite (laughs) and we were feeling a little bit more awkward about it. Like those we may not have sounded as passionate about our er earlier artists, but please understand one, they're amazing artists. But two, you know, we were coming into our own. So we, we weren't sure how to phrase things. We were uncomfortable with the platform and we were growing into it. So part of that growing pain was not being able to paint some of our early artists. Like, my gosh, sometimes I go back and I'm like, did I really already do that person? Can I not give them more of a hype fest? Like, Yes. Like some of the ones that you've done that I just really 
Wow. Even seeing them on Twitter, because we always follow the artists and the activists on Twitter after they're featured. On our official account. Yes. <laughs> I was very hyper aware as the one on uh, social media <laughs> of their posts and just it made me really proud of the people that we were picking. They they really came correct and Definitely. they continue to. There's such vocal advocates for so many issues, but specifically the ones that we're dealing with in our modern society. All of our artists were people who deserved hype 100%. They were always inviting to marginalized people and offered safety like this, like what we said the whole time. Like there are so many people out here creating content that is actually safe. They just need to be given a platform that they're not given right now. Like yeah. one level that we can make a personal difference is just incorporating these amazing artists that already 100% exist that just need people to interact with them, you know? Yes. Yeah. I am so happy that we were able to feature all of those artists but some of them i'm like dang i should have saved that to where we had more people listening <laughs> I know. um but then it's like oh i would have had to feature someone mm -hmm. someone would have had to have been the first artist so in that regard i'm just really glad that we started off and ended so strong with our artists there was not a single artist not a single activist that i was not super hype about like every week there was somebody else to hype up because that's how many amazing people are out there providing such awesome content or working so hard in activism like that's how many people are out there doing awesome stuff also side note if you're interested or if you joined us late in the season or if you just never got a chance to look into any of the musical artists we are actually going to both be making a playlist on spotify that we will post the link to on our social media yes those playlists are going to include our artists that we spotlighted if they are a musical artist <laughs> i know we did do some visual artists as well but unfortunately we obviously cannot make a playlist in the same way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with those visual artists so definitely a hundred percent look forward to that all right before we officially wrap up for the entire year the last little thing we want to do is just kind of spend some time with some fan interactions that we've had, again, on public platforms, so nothing private. But um, I can't stress this enough. I actually, before we get into the comments themselves, I just want to take a minute for anybody who has engaged with us in, on any platform, even if you haven't engaged with us and if you've just been a longtime listener, the fact that anybody but our moms are listening to this, like, I can't stress it enough. It's so overwhelmingly humbling. And it also just makes me so proud because we are making content that would have a really hard time making it if people didn't care. People often have a hard time learning about uncomfortable topics. They have a hard time engaging and interacting and going out of their way to better their own knowledge or, you know, feel comfortable in these dynamics talking about these things. And so just like, it's a shout out for everybody who listens to us but it's also just like i hope that every day you feel proud of yourself for engaging in this kind of content for doing extended reading whatever you do to better your knowledge i hope that you genuinely understand how proud i am of you how proud elisa is of you like just be very proud of yourself because i know i'm certainly proud of all of you each and every one of you for doing that even if our audience always stays small it makes me feel more hopeful for a future 
because even just five people listening means that there are five people out there like trying to learn more and be part of the change, be part of the change that we so deeply believe in. Yes. And to that end of just really uplifting and spotlighting our wonderful audience, let's jump into some of these comments that you've left for us. Um, we're going to start on Ko-Fi. And the first thing was Layla F. said, I love your podcast and binged it all in two days. Can't wait to hear more. I think what was really incredible for me was when we first got messages about people binging our podcast. In any sense at all, I feel like a lot of our stuff, if not done right, can be really dry. And so it just made me really touched that what we were doing was so bingeable. But also, again, like I think it just speaks volumes about Layla's willingness to sit there and just like learn. Oh, that's so amazing. That's so amazing that she made that conscious choice. My gosh, it's awesome. It's awesome of her and just so humbling for us to hear. Yes. Like just that idea of someone binging. Because I, I know when I binge something, I mean it with my whole chest. Like, I'm invested. <laughs> yes. And so to have that energy directed at us and our content, amazing. Next, we have Maddie, who said, support from Ireland. <sighs> Love to listen to these shows while I cook, particularly. Amazing historians. By the way, Maddie also donated yet again at the very end of our season, saying thanks for a great first season. And Maddie, when I tell you, I love you. <laughs> I love that you stayed for the whole season. It makes my heart so happy. Just so touched that you listened to the whole season. I love you so much. And I hope that you're here with us again in season two and you continue to be proud of the work that we do. Yes, particularly our international audience. I always feel so grateful that they're listening. We do have a focus on U.S. history. And so they don't have to learn this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it just adds this extra layer of like pure learning to make the world better. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's just it's, it's amazing that people care. Yes. <laughs> and I, I think that it's I think sometimes it's more than the United States deserves because I think the United States is notorious for not really caring about other countries or the state of their country, which is so foreign to me. I've always been interested in foreign politics. I always try to stay really up to date, but I've always I've always found it kind of to be a vice of a lot of Americans to just not be involved in global affairs. And I, I really think it's a fault. It's 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 a fault of a lot of people. And it's wonderful, even though a lot of Americans have that annoying energy i'm just so glad that some people still give us the time of day <laughs> yes so next we have mariah who said i love your podcast you two are so engaging and inviting in the way you talk about history the subject matter is so important and i'm learning a lot and I love tea time at the end. At the end of every podcast, I feel like I just got finished chatting with friends. This one stayed with me probably longer than like as much as I love any comment. This one really stayed with me because obviously it speaks to our main objective, which is wanting to people to feel invited to our podcast. But also just like we are making this content, especially tea time, as if we're speaking to our friends. I mean, you're getting to see our raw forms. You're getting to talk to us and hear how we would phrase things in real time. And you are absolutely just finishing up a conversation with friends who love and admire you, my dear Mariah. <laughs> I hope you still listen, Mariah. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. 
Yes. And I hope this energy is able to come through through our podcast. This does give me some confirmation that it does. But we discuss all the time in our own personal lives about just how much we love other people and wanting the best for literally every person out there and for them to feel like we're friends like Mariah. Mariah! I love you, Mariah. So that is it for Ko-Fi. For ones that had a message on there, we did get some more contributions. Yeah. We see you. We see, And I hope you see us seeing you see us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm going to shift over to Facebook. We have one recommendation on our Facebook page. And it comes from... We are slightly sure that this might be Layla who we mentioned earlier it's somebody named Layla perhaps the same Layla (laughs) (laughs) they said this was so educational and presented so well I literally binged all of the episodes super informing wow like again like I know it's very similar to the first comment that perhaps the same Layla perhaps (laughs) um left for us but again it just makes my heart so warm so warm Not to be redundant, I will not say anything else because I wanted to just reiterate how much I love being bingeable, but... I either love one Layla or two Laylas. Either way, there's a lot of love for Laylas right now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, shifting once again to Apple Podcasts, we have two reviews on Apple Podcasts, but I am only able to see one of them. It's from My One Madden, and it says, Good Stuff. This podcast gives me the depth of information that I seek in easily digestible episodes, engaging and informative. It's an A plus for me with two thumbs up. Like, wow. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like, my gosh, (laughs) the love that I feel in my heart for this person is so deep. Again, it's just really affirming um, that at least for some people is resonating what we're trying to do, you know? Yes. We talked about how tea really helped us to feel confident in what we were doing. Tea as in the creator, not tea as in the drink. But, you know, tea as in the drink, too. But mostly tea (laughs) as in the creator. Yes, tea noir. But in addition to that, I cannot overstate just how much these comments, these reviews, the private messages, how much that fueled us in order to keep going, to keep creating this content, and that all of the thought that we were putting into every decision that we were making, that it was working and that we were conveying the correct tone, that we were being engaging, that it was entertaining, that people were able to learn Like, that's not something that can go without being directly linked, directly linked to the people who took the time to let us know. You taking a fraction of your time to tell us something, even the shorter comments, you just like, thanks for this episode or I loved it, whatever it is, it it fuels us in a way that just can never be underestimated. Yes. And the last place we're going to go and look for these comments is actually on YouTube. If you were not already aware, we do also post our podcast episodes there as well. And so we have some wonderful comments. We're not going to read all of them. (laughs) But that one, we do actually have way more traction comment wise on our YouTube videos than we do some other places. So not all of them can get mentioned. (laughs) Not that there's like a ton or anything, but there are are too many to fit into this. 
This was a sentiment I saw echoed in a few comments, but this one specifically is from Ice Magic. About to binge this all today. Can't wait. I've been doing my own research just for my own purposes, so I can't wait to learn some new stuff and add to my notes. Thank you guys for doing and uploading this on YouTube. So I wanted to highlight this one specifically because there were a few people on YouTube who want expressed gratitude that we uploaded it there. And we're just so glad that we were able to upload it and make it more accessible to more people. One of our main goals is to make it as accessible as possible for everybody. As much as we harp on like Ko-Fi or Patreon, all those different things, we don't expect... <laughs> any send from you. This is something that everybody, no matter how much money, no matter what kind of income they come from, we want everybody to be able to interact with this and have this content available to them. Yeah. It was actually my dad who first came to me and he was like, hey, you need to upload on YouTube. And we had initially held off from uploading on YouTube because we, we don't have a visual element yet to our podcast. And so I just didn't think that it would do very well on YouTube. But the fact that there are people who specifically go there to listen to us, that honestly made it so worth it. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> but also, um, I'm really glad that you, Ice, and <laughs> the other people who express that as well are able to have access to it. So yeah. Next, <laughs> I want to highlight someone who for a while commented on every video and we nobody. saw <laughs> yes. nobody. <laughs> Their name is literally nobody on um, YouTube. It was interesting because we could visually see as they binge through each episode. And we got a notification each time they left. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, they're still doing it. <laughs> that was cool. Yes. And um, to, s to get to see in real time someone live tweeting us, essentially, <laughs> <laughs> as they listen to our episodes. It was so much fun. So, so cool. we saw you nobody. <laughs> we saw you nobody. You're not nobody to me. In fact, you're pretty much somebody. <laughs> so I am so sorry if I pronounced this incorrectly. The next comment I wanted to highlight was from Pumalelo Gumede. And they said, hello from South Africa. That is amazing to me. Talking about South African history, when we did our white supremacy episode, it was just so amazing to know that there were, and we have some other South African followers as well that came up on our analytics. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's just so exciting to one, be fact checked and make sure that if there was an inconsistency or an inaccuracy in my telling that we could, you know, fix it. <laughs> but also just, it was just so cool. Cause it's like, oh my gosh, I see you, see me talking about you. Ah! Like it was exciting. Yes. And it, it made me feel so proud of what we were doing because it's like someone from that place that we're talking about who I'm sure has a much more extensive knowledge of the history was engaging with our content. And that to me just felt like we were giving inaccurate gaze, even though so many times other places history either gets ignored in the United States or it, it's a very like American exceptionalist lens over it. Everybody who had any comment that we did not read today, we loved every single comment that we received. All the ones who told us that they were coming from T Noir's video. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for every comment that we got, honestly, genuinely. Yeah, we literally like freaked out over every comment. single one. I like, think yeah. one was just one time a comment was just like a heart. And, and we, we were like, like, oh my gosh, like, yeah. <laughs> somebody hearted us. Like, I know. Yeah. So. Yeah. 
we genuinely totally fangirl about all of you all of you we love all of you all right so that is the wrap (laughs) of part two of our extended tea party Hopefully you enjoyed. Hopefully it gave you a little look into how we do things and how we felt while making the podcast. And I genuinely hope you made it till the end. <laughs> Considering we've just been talking. Yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah, so we're going to be continuing our break through the end of this year. We'll come back sometime in 2021, fresh and anew and with some more information and history for you all. And with that... We are going to end. Thank you all for joining in and one last time. Bye.